The Gist is sponsored by Citrix GoToMeeting. When meetings matter, millions choose GoToMeeting. Hold a meeting with anyone from the convenience of your computer, smartphone, or tablet. Get a free 30-day trial by visiting GoToMeeting.com and clicking the Try It Free button. And by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, and online store. Try the new Squarespace 7 and get 10% off when you visit squarespace.com and enter offer code GIST. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, March 3rd, 2015. From Slate, it's the GIST. I'm Mike Pesca. Haifika Ponia Pohamba, the outgoing president of Namibia, is leaving office with $5 million. He got that $5 million for leaving office. The Mo Ibrahim Foundation gives the prize to a former head of state who has been democratically elected and serves only the constitutionally mandated term. Oh, and by the way, it's $5 million over 10 years, then $200,000 for life. Perhaps some of the Haifikapunye Pohamba money was contributed by nervous Western newsreaders, delighted not to have to try to pronounce Haifikapunye Pohamba. But I pronounce the award genius. If only we could apply the award to other walks of life. In fact. Welcome to the 86th annual Egress Awards, given to those who've overstayed their welcome and know it. So we just gave out the award in the very, very crowded category of news anchor. And now the award for cable television presence, who we pay to leave the public arena. The nominees for the Levy are infomercial spastic Matthew Lesko, ill-tempered X-ray Ann Coulter, all the Vanderpumps, Cake Boss the Cake Boss, former fat guy Jared from Subway, foot fetishist Dick Morris, and sports squawker Skip Bayless. And the Levy goes to, oh, for the fifth year in a row, it's Donald Trump. Coming up to the stage to give his acceptance speech is Mr. Trump, which, as we've told him for the last four years, disqualifies him for the Levy. Well, sorry to all the losers, meaning everyone who's had to watch these hanger-on hucksters. Coming up, our J.D. Salinger Lifetime Achievement Award for those who've left the public sphere. And we ask, whatever happened to Faith Popcorn and Alan Keyes? No, we don't. They took their Levies and left. And that's what's coming up on the Egress Awards. And coming up on our show, Mustard Talk. Yeah, a mustard sommelier. She works in a standalone mustard-only shop. The mustard larity is nigh. And I spiel about the time when the U.S. Congress did its best impersonation of the Knesset. Really a masterful job. Mwah. But before contemplating BB's address, we consider address. It's been four days and lives are still being stitched back together. Pieces are just now starting to be picked up. A young woman in Kuala Lumpur is seeing life anew for the first time. People like Belinda Torkelson say they know that life must go on. 
A school crossing guard in Wisconsin's Fox River Valley is relearning about the new normal. I don't know how you go on. I mean, I'm sure you will, but I mean, look at this. Still, it is hard to forget where you were when you heard. It is harder still to envision a time before you were asked the question. Only four or five days ago. Or was it a lifetime? But then the query was posed and we were never the same. Is this dress white and gold or black and blue? Who can really say where we will go next and what it all means? Also, how do you talk to your kids about the color of the dress? And what will it mean for domestic politics and international relations? Joining me now to sort through the detritus of differing sartorial shadings is pretty much the most important person at our organization, Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia. Hi. I like that pretty much. Yeah. Pretty much. <laughs> I just want to thank you for being with us in this moment. I think we need voices like yours. I, I'm always happy to serve. Okay, now seriously. BuzzFeed, as of this writing, got 38 million views for that first post. What does that mean? So 38 million views is a huge spike in viral traffic to a site that is known for its ability to capture viral traffic. It's no accident that it was BuzzFeed that surfaced this post, that packaged it in such a way that it captured everybody's attention and earned them this major windfall of traffic. And so what does the windfall do for them, though? Well, so BuzzFeed has an interesting business model. You know, a lot of sites are financed by display advertising. They have ads on every page. You know, the ads are sold at what's called a CPM, which is the the amount that advertisers pay to reach a thousand pairs of eyeballs. Like Um, what we think of advertising, like TV advertising. Or here's this many people, you're reaching this many people, I'll pay this much to reach that many people. Exactly. So a lot of websites... That's not BuzzFeed? No. A lot of websites pay it that way. If they had gotten this spike, it would have meant actual money in the door. BuzzFeed has a different model. BuzzFeed does sponsored content or native advertising or brand advertising. It goes by a bunch of different names. It's old-fashioned advertorial. It's a piece of content that looks a little bit like a story, but is paid for and labeled as being from a brand. And so what BuzzFeed has here is sort of a twofold benefit. They have a amazing case study in how good they are at figuring out what's going to go viral and getting it to go viral. You mean when they say a case study for themselves or to pitch to someone to who pitch, wants to advertise? To pitch, yeah. to, to pitch to potential advertisers. Yeah. So their pitch to advertisers is, don't just buy display advertising on another website. Let us make a list for you. I mean, I looked this morning at their website. They have a list from Geico of like stupid puns that dads say. They have a list for IHOP about why we should all be so happy that it's pancake day. Neither of these pieces of content were particularly scintillating to my view, but they look different from just an IHOP banner ad. And right. their pitch to the IHOPs and the Geicos of the world is, look, we know exactly how to make content that that spreads, that people share, that goes viral, that will organically end up in people's news feeds. So spend money with us, get us to make that content, and your brand name will get out there uh, in a more unorthodox way than if you just bought ads somewhere else. So they have a great case study. And then also they do they did probably drive some users, some viewers to the ads they have on the site. So there's more people on the site generally over the last five days because the dress post appeared there. Those people are recirculating, reshuffling around the site. I'm sure a bunch of those 38 million pairs of eyeballs ended up on some of their brand and display advertising. Right. So I'm on the site now. 11 times in life when you need the help of another human Part of two, please. Don't know what that means. Weight Watchers knows that life is full of moments. So it's sponsored by Weight Watchers. So will Weight Watchers be saying, well, great that you got 38 million views for the dress post. And I guess that means that people are more likely to go to your site. So there's a chance they'll watch the way or they'll 
click on this Weight Watchers thing. But, you know, if you're not getting $38 million or even $3 million for my Weight Watchers post, uh, I'm not paying for the fact that you got $38 million for that other post. They're not going to pay for the fact that they got $38 million for that other post. But I bet that the post, you know, it gives the advertising crew at BuzzFeed a chance to put the foot in the door and say, look, we've really proved we can do this. Last time we asked you to try brand advertising with us, you said you weren't ready, but this is where the internet is. This is the kind of content people like. Give us a try this time. This year, you know, your brand should spend some money on this. Yeah, you know, it, it gives them a selling point. Well, okay, so that's BuzzFeed's business model, this native advertising. What about a different kind of website? If they could just monetize 38 million viewers, can you come close to putting a dollar value on what that might be worth to uh, a more traditional kind of website? Okay, well, uh, you can fact check my math yeah, here, but yeah. I Googled uh, average display ad CPM. This morning, and on Monetize Pros, I got an average digital display ad CPM. That's cost per M, which is Latin for 1,000 eyeballs. Mille, old Latin too. All right, fact check my Latin, fact check my math, of $2.80. So if you've got 38 million views uh, at $2.80, that comes to $106,400. Yeah. Paul Ford writing in Medium echoed something you just said, which is like they're really good at what they do. And then Alex Perrine writing in Gawker wrote this. The craft they, BuzzFeed, the craft they honed was basically having enough money to pay enough people to throw an infinite amount of shit at the wall, the wall being the internet, securing the knowledge that some of it will stick and whatever doesn't won't harm the BuzzFeed brand because, quote, there is a ton of shit on this website is a central part of the BuzzFeed brand. Is that essentially BuzzFeed's craft, throwing a lot of shit at the wall and hoping or pretty much knowing that some of it will gain traction? I don't think that's totally fair. I mean, I think what BuzzFeed is really good at doing is testing out different types of content, right? Mm -hmm. So they were the ones who drove the move across the internet away from the slideshow, click, 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 and to the image list. They're also really smart at writing captions and creating a reading experience that goes from headline to kind of caption for image, image, and then image subcaption. They they know how to create a reading experience out of those lists. And it's easy to roll your eyes and say, oh, it's all listicles. But there's a difference between the design of a listicle that is a pleasurable reading experience that might make you want to share it with your friends and a listicle that just looks big and stupid with captions that stink or aren't meant to be read at that length or, you know, aren't optimized for the kind of user experience that they're trying to create. Um, and they do that across different content types. They did that with quizzes last year. Remember when you kept getting asked all the time about what was, you know, really you're actually the state of Idaho, even though you're from New York and really I'm the state of North Carolina or whatever, Um, you know, which real... that Pocatello Wilmington summit. (laughs) Which real housewife are you? You know, they they keep experimenting with types of content. So I don't think it's fair to just say they're throwing stuff at the wall in terms of like they'll take anything and post it anywhere. I think they're very carefully honing an understanding of how users... Uh, read and share stuff online, and then covering a wide range of stuff within those different modes of of kind of writing and presenting ideas and images. If I, if you didn't know the story of this, I don't know, you're on vacation, you came back, and I showed you this post without the number of views. You saw it's BuzzFeed, you know what BuzzFeed does, what colors are this dress, Tumblr user swiped, uploaded an image, there's been a lot of debate. Would you say, oh, I could see this being, obviously not 38 million, but oh, I could see the appeal of this. Like, is there anything about that post that jumps out at you as close to captivating to other people? I mean, I was interested in the story. I looked at the photo when it came across my Twitter transom and and saw the dress as white and gold and showed it to my husband, and he saw it as blue and black. And okay. we were like, holy crap, that's crazy. Yeah. You I know? guess that ha- it has to happen 
Like I just saw it. And I'm like, well, how does anyone else see it? And the people I asked saw it the same way, and so it didn't seem. What remarkable. color did you see it as? Well, it's blue and blue and black. Well, see, I mean, so here, here we are. <laughs> so if you have that moment of like psychic disjuncture, you it's electric and it's super crazy, and you feel a little bit like you're high or something, and to have the whole internet have that moment of optical confusion at once was genuinely weird and interesting. And one thing that struck me about the responses to it is that the first round of calls that went out to optical experts to explain it, they weren't like, oh, yeah, yeah, we see this all the time. They were like, oh, this is a really weird image, actually. Yeah. Like, yeah. like Buzz, you guys really did find a very strange image that's creating a very unusual optical effect in a very large number of people. So it, it is an actual outlier scientific phenomenon, even though it arose from the bowels of Tumblr uh, and people were universally kind of confused and ensorcelled by it. And I can't say that I would have predicted it if I came back from vacation and saw that post. But having been through the experience of being startled by it, it was an unusual experience and an unusual phenomenon. And I don't think it's crazy that there was so much attention to it. The second or third ripple of ensorcelment, all the stuff, the content they created to surround it, what was good or brilliant about that in your estimation? I mean, there was definitely some hanger-on content. And, you know, it's late. We published a bunch of posts trying to understand the science of it and trying to understand why it had gone so viral. You know, Amanda has had a great point about the fact that it was that moment of showing the image to someone else, that you kind of had to have two heads at one screen disagreeing mm-hmm. to really mm-hmm. experience it and, and get what was cool about it. Right. And you know about the second screen. It's, this is about second brain. It's the, yeah. the second head, yeah. the extra two sets of eye, the extra two eyeballs. Um, so, you know, I, I think the fact that a bunch of people tried to ride that train to... Uh, you know, their readers' hearts and minds and and eyeballs and eventually their own pocketbooks um, is not that surprising and not super lamentable. Some of that stuff was interesting, some of it less so. Yeah, I I don't think this is uh, the absolute epitome of what's lamentable about the web. It was interesting. Different people see it in different ways. If there is something lamentable or if there is something to be, I don't know, worried about, whatever, I'll get into super hand-wringy mode. It is the idea that trying to act as if every phenomenon is the greatest thing and so many of them fall short of people really seeing the dress in different ways. Right. And one thing that... You get burned out on things that are supposed to be viral and clickable and one in whatever a thousand is, but... Yeah, and I think BuzzFeed's very cleverly created a world where that's what you expect from BuzzFeed so they can try everything and it doesn't make you think less of or differently about BuzzFeed because that's what they are. You know, whether or not you're admiring the craft of how they're framing each individual post, that is what they do. And when other more traditional sites, I mean, you know, so my parents were in town this weekend, my dad read the like print article about the dress in the business section of the New York Times on Saturday morning. Uh, And it did seem like kind of an, I mean, like, of course they should have covered it. That was a totally legit thing for the Times to put in the paper at this point. But it was, it did feel funny to have had this viral, very digital experience kind of filtered through all the way to a reading experience in print 36 hours later. Was, you know, old media, I think, has a couple of marching orders, do excellent journalism, break news, but also perhaps implied is don't have terrible coverage. (laughs) Don't make the bottom 20% waste the reader's time. Like, be very worried that everything is up to a standard. Like, that's a question. You know, meets our standard literally means is not below a certain point. And I wonder if uh, it's clear that that's different for BuzzFeed 
And you're saying that BuzzFeed's not getting that calculation wrong, but maybe the internet in general is. Well, I think one thing that any internet editor has to face is the conundrum of infinite space, right? What are you doing with infinite space? If you have limited space, you only have so many pages a day, you have to fight with the ad department and the business side to get as many pages as possible to fit in as many stories as possible. There, There is a, the sense of a bar of you know, everyone can flip through every page, see everything we do. There's nothing that can be hidden off in a back corner. Um, that sense that there's like a, a standard that everything has to meet is different in a print world than in a world of infinite space and in a world where people are not reading your publication as a comprehensive daily brief about anything. It would be impossible to read all the posts yeah. on BuzzFeed in a given day. Um, everybody's coming in sideways and nibbling. I mean, I actually think the the business model that's analogous for for website publishers these days is much more like a book publishing house than it is a classic magazine or newspaper because it's not, um, you know, we put the one story on the cover and it sells the whole thing and then it makes you read everything we've got in the report. It's more like you've got some blockbusters, you've got your Fifty Shades of Grey or your Dan Brown or your, you know, name another bestseller and, and those blockbusters and then some hits from your backlist, right? Like you've got, yeah. uh, you've got To Kill a Mockingbird and you've got maybe like the piece you published like six years ago about how to set up Wi-Fi that people still hit via Google search, the bestsellers and the backlist subsidize everything else you want to do. So that's your coverage from your cook. Uh, you know, you've got your poetry coverage. You've got, you know, stuff that doesn't attract as many readers or as much traffic or necessarily as many ad dollars, but that are remain important to your publication and its mission. And you kind of do those supported by the stuff on the fringes. And so you have to come up with a way to to hit all of those and finally, in uh, your last moments here, Julia, would you like to give us, I don't usually like to engage in this amount of log rolling, but would you like it all to give us a preview of uh, our big slate special package, these culottes, lavender or just light purple? <laughs> would you like to say anything about that? <laughs> you know, we're very proud. I really, I try to never reveal the strategy behind our culotte game. Yeah. So I, I resent the question. <laughs> Julia Turner, editor-in-chief of a website called Slate.com. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. This is always fun. We have all these devices and all these apps that supposedly makes things easier, but you know what they do? They just inundate us with information. So if you ever try to get a whole bunch of people together, you wind up saying, oh, that's good. I'll just schedule. Oh, it went on my Google calendar. Oh, it went on my email calendar. Oh, I knew how to get there via Uber. Oh, the subway was not working as it said on that subway app. I don't know. Maybe 40 years ago, we would just say, hey, we got no other choices. We got no way to get in touch with you. The meetings at this building and everyone had to show up because no one had any other way to not get there or to call the meeting off. Now there is a solution. It's Citrix GoToMeeting. It's sort of the equivalent of go to this building at this time. There's no other choice. GoToMeeting is the smarter way to meet. It makes it easier to meet with your team whenever you want to. You can meet from any computer, tablet, or smartphone. There are no travel expenses. There's no hassle of traffic. It's just at your desk and you do it right there. It's a link, right? You don't have to sign up. There are no speed bumps. You turn on your webcam and it's like you're all in the room together because GoToMeeting, everyone sees what you're seeing so your team can get on the same page and get going. I want you to sign up for GoToMeeting today. Try it free for 30 days. There's nothing to lose. Visit GoToMeeting.com, click the Try It Free button, and if you do it now, you have your first meeting up and running in minutes. That's GoToMeeting.com for your free 30-day trial. So hi, my name is Mike Pesca, and I'm standing in a place of business 
that I thought up until a few seconds ago was pronounced maybe mal. I'll spell it for you. M-A-I-L-L-E. Now that's six letters, but it's pronounced my. And I'm here joined by... Pierrette Hutner, who is the uh, mustard sommelier for my in the U.S. Tell me a little bit about yourself. You grew up where and you first acquired a taste for mustard when? <laughs> well, I, I am one of those rare people who grew up in New York City in the West Village. Uh-huh. So I grew up in a very culinary-oriented household. And what I always tell people is that other children got macaroni and cheese. And my brother and I grew up with scallops. <laughs> well, that's good. And what about mustard? So when you would grab a city dog, a dirty water dog, which I think have snap and are great, did you ever put ketchup on it? Uh, we weren't really a ketchup household. So my mother was uh, was certainly very interested in the culinary world and food and was a huge fan of Julia Child and, and hence a French a French connection there. Uh, so we weren't so much of a ketchup family as we were certainly, I would say, a expanded condiment family and mustard would be included in that. So is mustard French? <laughs> it can be. Yeah. My is French. <laughs> yes. Tell me a little bit about the history of mustard. Oh, sure. Well, well, mustard ha- has been around for hundreds of years, and there are different varieties from different parts of the world. Uh, as the mustard sommelier for Mai, I am better equipped to tell you how mustard began in terms of the Mai heritage. Please do. And we are actually one of the oldest historical brands in France. So we started in 1747 uh, by Antoine Mai who was a very innovative man of his time, and he actually started in vinegar as a medicinal substance. And that went into mustard and vinegar being sold as condiments and being sold as part of, uh, you know, kind of a a gourmet world. And uh, he was very, very much a man of his time. So he was actually very good friends with Marie Antoinette, and he was the official purveyor of mustard and vinegar to the French royal courts and then all of the European royal courts of the time. If he was really good friends, though, he could have gotten her to say, let them eat mustard, right? Or let them eat cake <laughs> I, I with he, mustard. Exactly. I, I think, you know, I think we really are remembering that quote wrong. It yeah. was obviously let them eat mustard. Yeah. They say there's no press. All press is good press. But maybe the soon-to-be decapitated symbol of the aristocracy, maybe not. But maybe yes. I don't know. Okay. So how do we make different varieties of mustard? Is it different seeds or is it things we add to the one kind of seed that's used in all the mustards? There are different seeds. So there are uh, brown seeds, there are yellow seeds, there are black seeds of mustard that are grown in different parts of the world. It is more what you do with the seeds once you get it. So uh, some mustard is actually made with uh, vinegar and some of it is made with white wine. So what you find primarily in my boutiques around the world is mustard that is based in white wine. So this boutique, we are here on 68th and Columbus. It is just a mustard store. I mean, there is, are there crackers? Are there anything to, there, okay, you do have some vinegar, but I, I don't even see anything to put the mustard on besides mustard. We do have breadsticks. You do have breadsticks. We do. We do have breadsticks. For sale or just to give out? No, no, just for for tastings. So when you come into the boutique, you can either go through a mustard tasting with just a a wooden spoon, or you can use breadsticks. I actually, for the hardcore, for the true mustard fan, I recommend using a wooden spoon. Of course. Otherwise, Uh, you get get in your palate, and it affects the taste. Exactly. So just so the, the taste isn't altered, and there's nothing interfering with what you're actually experiencing, because you first always want to actually smell it yeah 
you know, then you really want to taste it. And you also want to feel what the texture is. So that tells you a bit about, you know, what you're going to be cooking with it, what you're going to be doing with it, and what the overall effect is going to be. So some of the mustard is very, very smooth. Uh, some of it has a little bit more of a grainy effect to it. So the texture is very important as well. Let's, let's hit some mustard. What do you okay, say? Okay, I think so. So we are going to start with what is the focal point for the Columbus Boutique, as well as the My Boutiques around the world. And that is that we do something very extraordinary, and that is we sell mustard on tap. So just like you would go and you would have a beer drafted for you, we will draft your mustard into a stoneware jar. And then those jars are refillable in any My Boutique around the world. Now, I realize this isn't how it's normally done, but would you mind if I did a mustard keg stand? Would that be acceptable? <laughs> These guys could grab my feet and I'll just ingest the... Oh, uh, I do that all the time. <laughs> that's what goes on after on hours. Saturday. <laughs> my after hours. All right. Let's see. What do we have here? Well, since it, since it is chilly and, and you do need a little bit of warming up, we're actually yes. going to start with a very classic Dijon mustard, and that is the white wine mustard on tap. It is a, a really great flavor progression and um, quite a lot of heat to it. So I, I think we're going to start with that. And, and Although, I, is there some thought to if I blow out my taste buds early, I'm not going to be able to appreciate some of the more delicate mustards? I think you'll be okay. Yeah. I think we'll start with we'll start with the white wine and we'll work our way through okay. the mustards on tap. Okay, good. I like the idea of delicate mustards. <laughs> and it kicks in a little bit. Yup. <laughs> later. There's mm -hmm. always a pause. There's always yeah. a pause when someone tastes the white wine <laughs> mustard for the first time. But yeah. your circulatory system is going now. It's you're good. you're warmed up from the cold. So I don't know if it's on the label, but it just excited the humors in my blood. So that's good. <laughs> <laughs> So the next one we're going to taste is actually a, a winter seasonal item for us, which is the Chablis white wine and black truffle mustard. So this is something that if you taste first, you really, really need a few moments to kind of take, you know, take away. Um, it is a very rich, very decadent kind of taste. Um, a little bit of texture in it from the truffles, but uh, really great mustard for uh, cooking as well as for pairing. See, I see that it officially says a delight with scallops, to harken back to your youth, <laughs> a leg of lamb, fine beef steak, or yes. scrambled eggs, which don't seem to go with the other four just in terms of the refinement of the palate, but I could see it. That's good mustard. That's really good. Now, I, what I would do is, though, you're mm -hmm. right, of course it pairs well with leg of lamb. I could see that. But sure. what it does is it takes any hot dog and it elevates it to a truffle dog. Think about that. <laughs> think about, think about the cost savings. I know this is a little pricey. The cost so, savings, okay. So it's sure. it's $100 for 530 milliliters, which is the big, the vat, which is 17 ounces, okay? 17 ounces of mustard for 100 bucks. But if you just, that's about 500 schmears mm -hmm. of a knife. So you were taking your $2 hot dog and turning it into a truffle dog for, I mean, the cost savings is enormous. You're I'm sorry, I'm still thinking about the word schmears. Um, yeah. Yes, uh, I mean, absolutely. It's something that adds a, a, a lot of elegance to, to anything. So you know, whether it's a hot dog, whether it is something like just, you know, a, a filet of beef, uh, scrambled eggs, and, and one of my classic American favorites, which is mashed potatoes. It is one of the best secret ingredients into mashed potatoes. If you want to take your potatoes to a completely different level, you would use the Chablis white wine and black truffle mustard. Let's go over to the jars sure. if we can. 
Sure. And so, I see some different colors going mm -hmm. on here. Yes. Yeah, so um, you mentioned two things that oh. I love to pair with mustard, and uh, one is scrambled eggs, oh. and the other are hot dogs. Um, so one of my favorite pairings for scrambled eggs, and I, I really do use this so often that I, I think sometimes people are, are tired of me hearing me talk about it, but it is the uh, sun-dried tomato and espalette chili pepper mustard. It is uh, phenomenal with any egg dish. So great with scrambled eggs, great in an omelet or a frittata. It's just really quite delicious. Oh yeah, I could see that turning any omelet into a Denver omelet. And I think that that's, that's probably even spicier than the white wine I had. Or I felt it in the sinuses a it's little bit, a, in a good it's way. It's a different type of spice. Oh yeah. It's a different type of spice because it's the chili pepper. There's a purple mustard. You can't, maybe you would describe it as violet, but <laughs> it looks like a purple mustard. What can you tell me about that? I would, I would, I would actually describe it as, as a, uh, like a deep rose or, or almost a burgundy <sighs> color. Uh, this is something that's very region special. Of, of it is, yeah, yes. Um, so uh, this is something that's actually very special to the boutique and the brand because it is, is a Dijon blackcurrant liqueur mustard. Uh, and uh, Dijon, when you think of Dijon mustard, Mai is the benchmark for that. And uh, three things come from Dijon. So uh, black currants, mustard, and gingerbread. So of course we have a Dijon blackcurrant mustard. Oh, I've, I've been transported. I've been transported <laughs> to a world of ascots and dressage. I don't know, it's just a very classy mustard. I didn't see anyone in Dijon wearing an ascot, but... <laughs> Is there a state of mustard or there what's going on in the world of mustard that we're either seeing here or we should see soon? Well, I, I think that one of the things that you find is there are more flavors of mustard. So there's certainly the idea that mustard doesn't necessarily have to taste like mustard. So that is quite unusual, just like when you tasted blue cheese and you, and you said, well, this doesn't really taste like mustard to me. There are quite a few varieties that mustard is really secondary or tertiary in terms of the taste. Um, and what you're actually tasting are the other elements, so the herbs or the fruits or the nuts that are added in. And uh, that's certainly, I think, something that is current now that we'll see growing in the future. How many times a day do you think you say the word mustard? Uh, probably at least three or four dozen, if not more. I mean, it is your most common noun, right? If we did a, a word cloud on the things you say. It's also a verb to me. To mustard something? You can just something? mustard that up, yeah. Do you think if there ever comes a day when you're fired, will you get the pink slip or will you be told you don't cut the mustard? Well, you would get a yellow slip. <laughs> <laughs> Cha-ching! <laughs> What, uh, why, what, does, what does my, what does the, you know, mustard cognoscenti, the mustard senti think about American yellow mustard? Well, you know, I think that we appreciate all kinds of mustard. It's very diplomatic of you. <laughs> it is. But, it is. But this is the thing. This is I'm the an thing. American. You're you an American. You are an American. But if there isn't Shameful. a yellow mustard, yeah. then there isn't the understanding of something being more than a, you know, Yellow yeah. mustard. I, so if you don't have something to compare it to, you yep. don't really know how wonderful and pleasurable it can be. Mm -hmm. Other argument would be that's like saying if you never ate basically tasteless pablum, we'd never be able to develop an adult <laughs> palate. But listen, I'm not going to put words in your mouth. I'm just going to put mustard in my mouth. Thank you so much, Purette Hutner. And this was, I mean, you are the best mustard sommelier I have ever talked to. I think it's because I'm the only mustard sommelier you've you ever talked to. You are a singular mustard sommelier. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> if there can be a store just about mustard, 
not only can there be a website about mustard, I am going to predict there are now a thousand websites about mustard. How could there not be? Mustard goes well with so many things. It really brings out the flavor. But if you want to bring out the flavor of your mustard-related website, how are you going to do it? I would suggest Squarespace. It's simple, it's powerful, it's beautiful. 24-7 support via live chat and email. Don't bring up mustard too much in the chat. That's my recommendation. Like two-thirds of the chat should really be about, you know, what about your drag-and-drop technology? Tell me about your responsive design, right? They say the website scales to look great on any device, right? The tablet or the iPhone. But then every once in a while, it'll be like, by the way, do you like the truffle mustard? And then you get back to, now what's this about cover pages? I hear it's a feature that allows you to set up beautiful one page online presence in minutes. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. How about the rosemary and parsley mustard? So you got to get it in there after you talk all about the website. Start your trial with no credit card required and start building your website today. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code GIST to get 10% off your first purchase. That's GIST to get 10% off your first purchase on Squarespace. Squarespace, build it beautiful. And now the spiel, Yahoo for Netanyahu. Today, the leader of a Middle Eastern country actively tried to undercut U.S. foreign policy in his region. American lawmakers responded by A, denouncing him, B, strongly denouncing him, C, threatening military action against him, or D, giving him a forum on the floor of Congress and 26 or maybe 29 standing ovations. Well, it's D, because the leader was Benjamin Netanyahu and the country was Israel, so it really wasn't a fair question. But it also wasn't a fair forum, because Netanyahu's only aim was an attempt to scuttle negotiations with Iran before anyone really knew what the substance of those negotiations were. Yeah, well, the negotiations have only been going on for like a year. Netanyahu knows what the Iranians have been up to for the last 2,500 years. Tomorrow night, on the Jewish holiday of Purim, we'll read the book of Esther. We'll read of a powerful Persian viceroy named Amman, who plotted to destroy the Jewish people some 2,500 years ago. But a courageous Jewish woman, Queen Esther, exposed the plot, and gained for the Jewish people the right to defend themselves against their enemies. The plot was foiled. Our people were saved. Today, the Jewish people face another attempt by yet another Persian potentate to destroy us. Bible lesson there. I also like how they applauded that Haman was defeated. It's like, ooh, who's going to win? Who's going to win? Yay, Esther won. Haman, a Persian potentate. We will revisit that consonance in a moment. But please note also, Bible lesson, Esther's husband, who winds up killing Haman and arming the Jews, also a Persian, probably the historical figure Xerxes. My point is, let's not conflate our current situation with talk of centrifuges and nuclear fusion with, quote, thus the Jews smote all their enemies with the stroke of a sword and slaughter and destruction and did what they would unto those that hated them. But Netanyahu himself took a turn for the modern. Iran's supreme leader, Ayatollah Khamenei, spews the oldest hatred the oldest hatred of anti-Semitism with the newest technology. He tweets that Israel must be annihilated. He tweets. You know, in Iran, there isn't exactly free internet. 
tweets. He tweets it. Do you believe this guy? SMH. And again, Netanyahu with the language. Iran's goons in Gaza, its lackeys in Lebanon, its revolutionary guards on the Golan Heights are clutching Israel with three tentacles of terror. You're swinging like a gate there, BB. The goons in Gaza, the guards in the Golan. Okay, I got a couple other ones. Ready? The ne'er-do-wells down in the Negev. Yeah, I got a, I got a couple other ones. You ready? Nefarious nabobs of ne'er-do-wellism in the Negev. What about the jerks in the Jezreel Valley? The malefactors near Mount Hebron, brutes in Beersheba. I'm sure somewhere you can find a smattering of scoundrels in the Sinai. Next, Netanyahu got sarcastic. Now, two years ago, we were told to uh, give... President Rouhani and Foreign Minister Zarif a chance to bring change and moderation to Iran. Some change, some moderation. If that's moderation, I'd like to see radicalism. Boy, I'll tell you. I'll tell you this much. So when it comes to Iran and ISIS, the enemy of your enemy is your enemy. So let me tell you another thing. Now, I know this is not going to come a shock. as a shock to any of you. But Iran not only defies inspectors, it also plays a pretty good game of hide-and-cheat with them. Okay, and here is where it hit me. Netanyahu's speechwriters were pretty taken by their own zingers. You could just imagine the boys high-fiving over lines like that one or this one. This deal won't be a farewell to arms. It would be a farewell to arms control. Don't ask for whom the deal tolls. Ask what the death toll of the deal will be. Yeah, good one. Look, I could pick apart the phrasings, the setting, even the overall argument, which is we must oppose a deal with these bad guys because, you know, they're really bad guys. I mean, you know, when you think about it, isn't it unfortunate that the types of open, forward-thinking Western democracies you really can trust to do an arms deal with are never the countries that you really have to do an arms deal with. I wonder why that is. I thought, and this might seem contradictory, but it's not, but I thought the speech was unsurprising and poorly argued. It was well-delivered, but the phrases were hackneyed, and like the White House said, there were absolutely no new arguments. But I also think that it very much helped Netanyahu to the Israeli citizenry, which doesn't love Netanyahu. He still seems strong, and he seemed in command, and this is the issue he does well with. Strength in a scary world, that's his domain. If he convinces Israeli voters that that's the most important issue, he'll go on being prime minister. If housing prices and overall economic progress are the big issues, his opponents will gain ground. So he steered the conversation to the place he wanted it to be steered, and he comes away with tons of visuals of elected officials of the United States, Israel's most important ally, giving him uniform standing ovations. That gets to another point. I think the 50 or so Democrats who skipped the speech made a mistake. Instead of the pictures that we saw being of half of the assembly giving a standing O or pockets of ovation mixed with pockets of resistance, we got the visual of Netanyahu bringing everyone to their feet. But none of that was the most important thing about the speech. The most important thing about the speech was that it was bonkers. As the executive branch, think about this, the executive branch is off negotiating something. We don't know what could be a good deal, might not be a good deal. We don't know what, but a foreign leader is invited to the floor of Congress where he actively tries to undercut U.S. diplomatic efforts. This is 
terrible. No matter what you think about his positions, and everyone in the world knew what his positions were before he bastardized Hemingway, it is such a poor precedent. Imagine if during the Good Friday Accords, Ian Paisley were given a forum in front of Congress. Imagine if during the Dayton Accords, Milosevic had a forum, or Croatian President Tudman. Fine, you want to say, look, those weren't clear allies anyway. Before the United States joined the fighting in World War II, the Battle of Britain was in full flare. The Brits desperately wanted the U.S. to join in. Roosevelt wanted in, but many in Congress, most of the American people, opposed it. Churchill did not come to our shores to lobby Congress. The first time he spoke before a joint session of Congress was three weeks after the Pearl Harbor attack. He was, at the time, according to the New York Times, strong, forceful, impassioned. Here's what the Times says. His speech, which lasted more than 30 minutes, was typical, full of bubbling humor, biting denunciation of totalitarian enemies, stern courage, and hard facts. Today we got heaps of denunciation of enemies. That much is the same. As for the rest of it, as Netanyahu talked before an adoring Congress, Secretary of State John Kerry was off in Switzerland talking to a very difficult enemy, and those talks will continue beyond today. That's it for today's show. The gist is on iTunes. And when you're there, if you would be so kind, leave us a rating and a review. I will read a recent comment. I listen to the gist every day. It's part of my routine. I recommend it to friends. I like the opening hook, the interviews, flag and bear, and the storytelling segments, the spiel, and even the credits. Well, I did until Thursday, February 26th. With the elimination of any mention of Joel Meyer tree vandalism, The podcast feels incomplete and somehow empty. I will persevere, but alas, with a slight decrease of the joy I felt until now. Four days before this review comes in, title, It's Got to Stop. Mike, love the podcast, but the urinating and defecating stuff has got to stop. Both of you are right. You both gave me five stars. This is the community of discourse I've been trying to foster in the iTunes review. The Gist is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. That's P-A-N-O-P-L-Y. Gist intern Claire Tennisgetter adds a sublime aroma and flavor to an array of dishes, from simple to sumptuous, transforming the humble mashed potato and elevating risottos to dizzying heights. The Gist's managing producer, Joel Meyer, adds something altogether more refined than exciting to a whole range of dishes from a simple grilled steak to poached chicken in white wine. Stir executive producer Andy Bowers into a juice for game to add piquancy and a welcome contrasting sweetness. Simmer a handful of floury peeled potatoes until knife point tender. Mash with a thick slab of salty butter and a little hot milk. Add a generous teaspoon of the gist, pinch of salt, and beat into fluffy pillows. Or you know what? Given the rest of those ingredients, you know it would taste okay instead of the gist? Dirt, gravel, small sock. Thanks for listening. <laughs>